Hello and welcome to Essex by the Sea. I'm Owen Ward, exploring the Essex coast, finding out about the amazing and interesting stories it has to offer. This episode dropped on the morning of the 1st of February 2023. 70 years earlier, the Essex coast was submerged under a tidal surge which swept down the North Sea, overcoming the sea defences and swamping places like Harwich, Jaywick, Mersey Island, Brightlingsea, the Denji Peninsula, Foulness Island, Canvey Island, Tilbury and Purfleet. 58 people lost their lives on Canvey Island that night, while another 37 perished in Jaywick. Railway embankments collapsed near Harwich, where the tidal surge was over five and a half metres higher than sea level. 32,000 were evacuated from places like Canvey and Tilbury, and 160,000 acres of farmland were ruined. Cherry Burrows has written a book called The Farmer and the Fury. It's a fiction book, but based on the true events 70 years ago and how it affected the farming community. The novel is set on an island, revolving around the main characters George and Annie Hadley, along with their four children. When the floods arrive, the family are in the farmhouse when water swamps their home and decimates their lands. The story evolves into how the family go on to survive the following weeks and months following the flood. Cherry's inspiration has come from her husband, who, as a child in 1953, survived the flood when the family farm was inundated by water on Foulness Island. Cherry has spent many months speaking to lots of other people who remember what happened all those years ago to capture those stories firsthand. And I asked her what impact did the Great Flood have on the Essex coast 70 years ago. The flood, it was not just the North Sea, it came across the Atlantic as a storm and came across the top of Scotland down into the North Sea and it coincided with the last big spring tide when there was a full moon and that's why the tide was so high anyway. Um, so it came over onto the island and it just submerged everything to the extent that um, it was thought there was nobody alive on the island and it was only my husband's father's um, friend who owned a light aircraft at the time who flew over in his light aircraft and realised that there were survivors on the island. We perhaps see images, black and white grainy footage of places like Jaywick, Canby Island where houses were submerged right up to, to roof level in some of those places. It must have been quite a unusual site for the people who were trying to to form some kind of rescue. Yes and I think part of the reason why it was so devastating the flood was because there was little communication about it in the sense of not enough warning for people so when you talk to people about it or when they know of relatives that were in it um, they were just suddenly confronted with this massive amount of water and had little time to do much about it so a lot of people managed to get onto their roofs to survive um, and those who couldn't sadly did not survive. For a rural area like Foulness Island and, and other parts of the Essex coast, I mean, what sort of damage did it actually do? To the land itself, it did um, terrible damage. Um, the salt water destroyed all the insects in the land and destroyed the ability to grow crops for some time after the flood. Um, and my husband was telling me that um, the salt content was, I think, between 40, 60 or 80 tonnes of salt per acre. 
um, that he can remember looking out across the fields as a child and seeing just lots of thousands of white threads on the ground, on the soil, which were dead worms. So the whole structure of the soil had really got destroyed and was damaged. Um, and that took some effort um, to restore the land, which it was eventually, but of course it had a devastating impact on the farming community. And although it was 70 years ago, there will be people who remember it, there will be people who parents perhaps were uh, affected by this. It still has an impact even today on coastal communities doesn't it? Yes um, I was talking to a a young lady actually who was in her 20s who is in her 20s and she was telling me she lives on Canvey Island um, that they still have the siren the flood warning going regularly um, as part of their warning system for Canvey because of course that island was very severely affected and they lost unfortunately lives there as well Um, And, you know, there's an awareness of it um, wherever people live, I think, that it could happen again. Um, Hopefully it won't, but, um, you know, there is an awareness by the Essex people, I think, about it in that sense. The sea defences since that event have been built up along Essex coast. You know, you can't escape the sea walls and and the flood defences that have been there. But there are still parts that are deliberately left to to nature, perhaps a bit more, and, and allowed to flood occasionally. But this just swamped the land and and, I mean how many years did it take to to recover it as your husband said? Well I think for farming um, it was at least um, 18 months to two years before they could grow anything really. They tested the soil and they had help from the government at the time because of course food rationing was still on then um, post the second world war um, and the government were keen to ensure that, that their national food programme was not affected too much by this. And there were, hun- I think, over 250 farmers in Essex who were affected by the flood. And of course, that would have had a huge impact on the food supply chain um, in this country when it was quite, still quite finely balanced after the Second World War. Um, as far as certain areas are more more at risk than others. Of course, it depends on the sea level and the land. Um, some parts of the coast, um, for example, in Shoebury Ness, is, it's higher. Um, and um, my husband can remember being brought from Fowness Island because it hadn't flooded so much. What was it then that prompted you to write your book now? The Farmer and the Fury is your debut novel, I understand. Yes, it is my debut novel. Um, I've always wanted to write a novel But I never found a subject that really prompted me to do it because it's a massive commitment writing a novel. Um, I started in 2019, September 2019. And when my husband, you know, he's been talking to me about this for a long time, but the more we spoke about it, the more I thought this is a really good story that's not really been heard from the farming community about what happened. There are lots of very good non-fiction books about the flood. Um, and they are excellent as a reference if one wanted to look at those. But in terms of getting a story out there, that's why I wanted to write this. And without giving any spoilers away, you mentioned, obviously, it's based on the lives of a farming couple. Where does the story go? As I say, without any spoilers, if you can. (laughs) Well, the story um, opens quite quickly with the flood itself. 
and the devastation it caused. And we've talked a lot about the soil, but it also um, killed a lot of animals. Um, Cattle, livestock, they either drowned immediately in the flood or some survived and got onto higher land. And then the problem was, particularly on Fowness Island and some of the other islands, they couldn't get the cattle off. If their farms were inland more, the army couldn't get to them. Um, And then they had the problem of trying to keep them fed and watered and there was no fresh water. Um, So it it ended up that um, a lot of the cattle and livestock had to be destroyed anyway when there was a food shortage. Um, And my husband's father, he can remember having his pigs slaughtered. They were perfectly healthy animals, but he couldn't sustain them or feed them. So it's about that impact, the plot line, um, and it's about how they um, recover from the flood. Was help on hand quite quickly, do you think? Well, I think they started, um, from what I've been told, the rescue happened very quickly after the flood from Essex headquarters. They were rowed across in the flatties. My husband said they were called the flatties, the rowing boats. But he can remember being rowed across open fields because the army couldn't get inland to get to them. So um, they had to be rowed across in sub-zero temperatures and very high winds. That was the thing, because the storm that brought it, it was windy, it was the 1st of February... It's winter, the days are short, the nights are still very long, uh, 1st of February, and cold as well. You know, this was very cold conditions. And there are reports of of some of those who passed away actually passing away from hypothermia rather than drowning from, from the flood. And the fact that the water stayed around on the land as well, and it didn't recede straight away. Some people perhaps sort of thought, well, the tide came in, the tide went out. It isn't a tide in that sense. This is a full-on flood that affects and devastates such a large swathe of, of Essex. Yes, yeah, so just two points there. I mean, the, the, the issue of um, dying from hypothermia or getting pneumonia, for example, and there were lots of consequences after the flood. For example, children got whooping cough. My husband got whooping cough as a child. It was a common disease then after the flood. What I didn't realise until I wrote this book was you get a spring tide every two weeks right through the year. Um, and this particular tide, a 31st of January, 1st of February, was the big spring tide with the last winter moon, so the impact of the moon on the tide. So when they had to um, try and repair the wall, they did temporary repairs first of all, and this is on Fowness Island, and they got that wall repaired before the next spring tide in the middle of February. That was a temporary repair, and of course while they're, do- while they're doing it, they've still got the tide coming back in every day, ebbing and flowing, um, and it wasn't until they'd completely blocked that off that the wall held um, and they were helped by everybody really. One thing you mentioned in your book you cover the story of the flood itself very quickly and that's probably because it did come very quickly and came very much as a surprise on the 31st of January 1953 didn't it? Yes and um, obviously that's a a big event in the book Mm. and the reason I put it at the beginning of the book is because it's, I suppose it's almost an incident that, well, it is an incident which um, had such devastating consequences and altered people's lives. You know, whether they survived the flood, whatever happened, it's something they remember. Have, have people told you as part of your research whether they got any warning? Because we didn't have mobile phones, very few people had landlines even perhaps in, in 1953. So would the first that they knew about it would literally be the water coming over the the original sea defences? Well, I think for some people that's right. Um, 
if they um, are farmers, for example, would be aware to some extent, they'd have their uh, barometers, they'd have, be, have some awareness, but there was an inability to do much about it. Um, as you say, there were, the communication lines were, were difficult because we didn't have that level of communication then. So you might have had the local Bobby going around trying to warn people, um, but not communication or warning like we know today. And that's one of the reasons why it had such an impact. Now, your book has taken a few years to uh, be written and published. How have you found the experience of writing it? Well, I spent um, almost two years, 18 months to two years, just talking to people because I wanted the primary source first-hand information and I wanted to write the story based on that. And I was writing every day bits of the book or bits about characters, etc. But I didn't actually start writing it until March 21 when I actually started doing the chapters. And then after that, when I'd finished it, I asked a group of people to read it and to give me feedback and that's quite a scary thing to do because it goes out to people and you wait for their comments to come back but it's a necessary thing to do because they're the reading public so that was done and then eventually it got to publication available now you've got a copy here just in front of us the cover is um quite a stormy sky above the um the sun um sunrise bottom um but the idea of the story is the book it's, it says at the beginning of the book it's dedicated to everybody affected by the flood whether they were in it whether they knew relatives that were in it whether their properties were damaged etc and the idea is is to get the story out there because i think it's such an important story and it has such significance um locally mm. yeah will there be a follow-up story I don't know at the moment. I mean, in one sense, this is unique. It stands on its own as a a book, um, and I'm still thinking about that. You never know. There may be a a sequel to The Farmer and the Fury yet. Where can people get hold of a copy if they would like to, uh, to pick up a copy themselves? I mean, you can buy it on Amazon. You can get it Kindle version um, or paperback on Amazon. Um, It's going to be going into Waterstones, hopefully, in um, a couple of weeks' time. And it has gone out to local bookshops for consideration for them to um, put in their their window or in their bookstores. Fantastic. Well, Cherry, um, thank you so much for joining me and and telling me about your your book and how it all came about uh, following the events 70 years ago. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode marking the 70th anniversary of the Great Flood. Thank you very much.